0: The price of the lobster roll, a New England summer classic, has reached new highs.
1: Then all the price was way up, but the boys aren't catching anything. But that's the kind of year it's been.
0: From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. As we gear up for the tourist season, how the pandemic has affected seafood prices, and the restaurant workforce. Plus, Boston Poet Laureate Portia Oleiwola uses futurism to look back at history.
2: It's reimagining, it's... Inserting magic in a way that feels like something might live forever.
0: And this is how the band Lake Street Dive asked its newest member, Aki Burmese, to come on board.
3: When I turned back, there were five plastic uh, engagement rings on my salad plate. And uh, I was formally propositioned to become uh, a member of the band. Uh, And I said yes, a thousand times yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about their latest album. It's Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the
4: New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a
0: changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Stringer. Thanks for joining us. This is our last episode of Next. For five years, we've brought you stories all about New England at a time of change. And we'll have more on our own changes later in the show. But first, we asked listeners to reflect on what the region means to them. We got a message on Facebook from AC Dub who said, One thing that makes New England special is that feeling of hope and happiness in spring when the weather starts to shift towards the better, and we take a collective exhale now that the winter is over. In that spirit, we're starting the show with an eye towards summer and the tourism economy. New England states are gearing up for a season that could be much more active than 2020. This means many businesses are looking to pull more people onto their payroll. By now, you've likely heard that restaurants are really struggling to hire enough workers. As New Hampshire Public Radio's Todd Bookman reports, the pandemic is prompting some industry veterans to rethink how restaurant workers get paid.
5: For 67 years, Hart's Turkey Farm Restaurant has had one star item on its menu.
6: I make turkey in every way that you can imagine. Sim Willie
5: is third-generation owner of this Meredith institution. Turkey piccata, turkey dinner, turkey croquettes, turkey nuggets. Hart's is a big restaurant. At full capacity, it seats about 600 people. Do you ever get sick of turkey? I do not. On a busy day, he's cooking and serving 140-pound turkeys. For that, you need a big staff. Willie has about 230 employees during the busy summer tourist season. But this year, the applicants just aren't showing up. I'm approximately about 100 short on my staff this year, at this point. There's a shortage of workers across lots of sectors of the job market right now. And it's particularly intense for restaurants. Willie says he's lucky to get one applicant a week. So to try and attract people, he's bumping up wages.
6: You know, we used to start everyone around $12 an hour. We're now closer to that $15, $16 an hour, depending on on the job. There are a few reasons why
5: Hartz is struggling to hire. One issue is housing. It's expensive to live in a tourist area like the Lakes region. There are demographic issues. Lots of retirees and second homeowners live in New Hampshire. Not a lot of young people who typically staff restaurants. Heart's in the past has used J-1 visas to bring over international workers, but those programs have been limited due to COVID. And the shortage has real
6: consequences. At some point in time, if we don't get more help, I will have to consider, do I close a day a week? Do I not open for lunch? Or different things like that, which I prefer not to do. There's one other factor that lots of
5: tours I spoke with say has been slowing down hiring. The additional $300 a week in unemployment benefits the federal government has been paying. Starting next month, Governor Chris Sununu is following other Republican governors in ending that program.
6: Employers are opening up faster than we even envisioned. Um, and uh, the need for that $300 incentive or, or opportunity for folks not to have to be at work, um,
5: the need for that is just is drastically dwindling. The argument is that with smaller benefits, workers will come off the sidelines. But that doesn't mean people will necessarily come back to the restaurant industry.
7: The pandemic definitely gave a lot of people a renewed perspective.
5: Lily Jan is a lecturer of food and beverage management at the Hotel School of Cornell University. She says restaurants have long struggled to hire enough staff. The pandemic only magnified it. Jan says when many of her industry friends got laid off last year during the shutdown, a lot of them decided to find new
7: careers.
5: What do they tell you? What are some of the reasons they are giving for leaving the industry?
7: They had some time off to think about what they wanted to do and who they wanted to be and where they wanted to spend their time. And I think a lot of people were reflecting and saying, this isn't necessarily where I want to go back to.
5: In New Hampshire right now, there are about 5,000 fewer restaurant workers than there were pre-pandemic. It's unclear how many will come back. It's hard for servers to work on their feet all day for minimum wage, $3.27 an hour plus tips. Jan says service workers often feel undervalued.
7: These are people who are there for consumers and guests on their best days, for weddings and anniversaries and proposals, on their worst days, for funerals and commiserating job losses and things like that, on all of the days in between when life is too hectic and you just need to grab a pizza from somewhere. These are the people that are there for you in good times, in bad times, in stressful times. But yet somehow... We think that they're only worth the literal minimum in compensation.
5: The challenge is restaurants are already running on thin margins. And if they pass on the cost of higher wages, customers may not want to pay more for that turkey sandwich. And remember, at Hearts and Meredith, Sim Willie has already boosted wages but still isn't getting applicants.
6: You know, this is my family's business. This is our, our legacy, or my legacy now. And, and, and I just wanted to get through the pandemic. And, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh my goodness, we're going to get through it. And then one day we're going to open. And, and now I don't have a
5: staff. Not enough staff means not as many customers. And that's not something any restaurant wants to contemplate. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman.
0: Seafood prices are experiencing a post-pandemic bump in the U.S., and it could persist into the future. This is a potential bright side to the market disruptions COVID-19 brought the industry. But if you're craving the iconic lobster roll around Memorial Day, know this. It's also driven the price of the New England summer classic to new highs. Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever reports.
8: Gary Blackman Sr. and his wife have been running Karen's Hideaway, a lobster shack in Coastal Booth Bay, for two decades. Lobster rolls there were $28 last week. That reflected dock prices for hard-shell lobster that have been bouncing around between $6 and $12 a pound for weeks, when there's product coming in at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, the boys, you all know, the price was way up, but the boys aren't catching anything. But that's the kind of year it's been. Why no one has any answers. I mean it's just could be the water's too cold, the weather's crazy. No one really has an answer. I'm hoping in a week or two things things change.
8: Lobster landings don't usually get a full head of steam until after Memorial Day, when more boats are in the water and the lobster get more active, shedding their old shells. But industry experts say the dizzying heights of today's prices are being driven not just by the catch but also by the way consumers changed their buying habits during the pandemic.
1: We are seeing really high demand for lobster, for seafood, and that's true not only here in Maine, but throughout the country.
8: Annie Salikis is executive director of the Maine Lobster Dealers Association. She notes that when lockdowns shuttered much of the restaurant industry, seafood sales plummeted. But as the pandemic wore on, cookbooks started coming out, Home chefs started to experiment.
1: Consumers had time to handle seafood at home in a way that they never had before. And so people were buying not only lobster, but other seafood products from their supermarkets or their local fishmongers or directly from fishermen. And they were trying things.
8: Dealers ultimately were able to match that new trend, Celica says, repackaging and redirecting inventory that had been slated for the food service industry to retail outlets instead. Over time, with some landings lower than usual, and inventory glut abated and now is depleted.
1: The amount of, of frozen product in inventory is low, and the amount of long-term storage for live lobster is also low by comparison to previous years. And our customers are looking for it. People coming out of the pandemic are looking to celebrate. They're looking to treat themselves.
8: With restaurants reopening, Salikas notes that current consumer prices for seafood are up over last year by 19 percent. That's more than any other food commodity. And it may be a sign that at-home cooks and restaurants together are boosting demand to new levels. And it appears that consumers may be getting more comfortable, too, with seafood items that might be more unfamiliar in the home than, say, a nice frozen lobster tail. Live oysters for mussels from Maine, for instance.
9: We've seen nationally anywhere from a 25 to 35 percent increase in retail sales in Maine aquaculture
8: products. Sebastian Bell is executive director of the Maine Aquaculture Association. He says that a state-sponsored advertising campaign helped to steady sales of Maine seafood through the pandemic's worst ups and downs. Oyster growers did have a particularly tough time of it, he says. Oysters are notoriously a hard sell for home consumption because their shells can seem difficult to open. But Bell says growers have made some inroads, taking to social media to post DIY videos showing how to shuck an oyster.
1: If you go on Instagram or YouTube or
9: any of those things, you'll see hundreds of videos about how to shuck an oyster, and they become tremendously popular.
8: Bell says it's too early to tell whether the pandemic has created a permanent shift in consumer habits, but he is predicting a coming boom in seafood cookbooks. For everyone in the industry, balancing demand, price, costs, and inventory is a constant challenge. Back at Karen's Hideaway in Booth Bay, Gary Blackman Sr. says the high prices have hurt his usual May sales levels. But he's not all that worried about the lobster catch this summer.
1: I know in a couple of weeks, I said they'll be coming up my nose, and I know it. <laughs> and then I'll be growling because there's too many. So. <laughs>
8: One good sign, some of those newly molted lobsters, the soft-shell shedders, are beginning to show up in lobstermen's traps. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever.
0: Coming up... Massachusetts protesters reflect on what's changed since the murder of George Floyd. Plus, Boston Poet Laureate Portia Wola reimagines historical racism in her poems with an Afrofuturistic lens. It's next.
8: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing.
10: Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal.
8: For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging.
10: Many individuals traveled to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers, so we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford Healthcare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by.
8: To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health.
1: In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series,
10: Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten.
8: Funding provided by the Wadsworth Atheneum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture.
4: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart
0: Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. They came in different ages, races, and genders. Some brought signs, some brought kids. Many were just kids themselves. We're talking about the thousands of people who took to the streets around New England to protest the murder of George Floyd a year ago. Together, these protesters made political and cultural waves, igniting new conversations about racism. So WBUR in Boston asked some people who protested last year in Massachusetts to reflect. Adrian Ma spoke with them about where we as a community have come and what they hope for in the future.
3: So let me know when you're recording and I've, I'm, I'll do the same on my end and
11: we'll jump into it.
0: Should I start now? Yep. It's
11: recording. Okay, and then recording again. It is recording now. Testing. Yes.
9: My name is Carl Williams. I live in uh, the Roxbury neighborhood of Boston, Massachusetts. I'm an attorney, and I do work supporting social justice movements.
7: My name is Emily Conklin. Last summer, I was a resident of Somerville, and I'm a marine biologist.
12: My name is Tanwapia and I'm 19 years old. I originally am from Haiti, but I moved to Boston a few years ago. I'm currently a student at UMass Amherst. <laughs>
7: Boston is among the cities where demonstrators are taking to the streets to protest race and police brutality issues. These demonstrations were
9: sparked- I remember we were marching from Nubian Square in the heart of Roxbury and then down to the State House and the Boston Common. So we came over the bridge by MIT and, like, came up to stand by the State House. At one point I stopped and I was like, how many people are here? I'm a nerd and I remember this. I stood there for 28 minutes, right? And people were kept passing.
12: Everybody being out there like the number of people that came out, people of all, you know, genders and races. It just felt encouraging in a way to know that like more people than I thought cared.
7: And I remember
4: seeing the front of the march come in across the common. I just remember feeling like this is the most important thing we could be doing right now.
11: The kids were a little nervous, and and I can see that. Like In many cases, they were probably the only kids in the crowd. My name is Franklin Peralta. I live in Jamaica Plain, and I work for an organization called English for New Bostonians. Do you remember that we went to big protests last yes. year? Yes. Yes. What do you remember about the big protests?
13: That there was a bunch of people.
11: hmm And why did we go to those big protests last year?
13: Because police violence killed George Floyd.
11: We didn't show them the video. We explained to them what happened and we we told them this is this is bigger, bigger than our family. It happened to George Floyd but your father is a Latino man in Boston, it could happen to him too. And when you say something like that, then they are okay, let's go.
10: My name is Shaniqua Pereira. I live in Mattapan. I'm actually, raised in Mattapan. I am a paraprofessional for Boston Public Schools. What stuck with me was: Is this something that's really genuine for you know people who are coming into the community and protesting, and you know, or is this just like a wave that you're riding? This is something that I do, um, but this is something that I live you know, I do it because I have to. It's exhausting and I don't feel like a year later, I don't feel like it's changed. Chicago is still reeling from the fatal police shooting of 13-year-old Adam Toledo. Thousands.
8: The of family Chicagoans of Dante Wright is demanding changes in how police operate. Yet Wright
5: another police involved killing Bryant. 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant, shot dead by Columbus, Ohio. police. The family of Andrew Brown Jr. gathered at a church
1: in Elizabeth City today to remember his life and
5: call for transparency. That could have
1: been my child,
10: you know, that, that, that could be me, that could be my mom, that could be my, you know, and it's all goes back to the fact that they're black, you know? I feel like it's it's like the um, groundhog day. You know, you go to sleep, you wake up, it's the same thing, it's the same thing.
11: The best interaction I can have with the police is none. When I'm driving along with my kids in the back, if they see a police car approaching us without their mommy there, they're going to panic. In the city of Boston, I know that A very small amount of the budget to fund the police was redirected to social services. But I can tell you that was like a very tiny piece. What has
9: already happened is incredibly monumental. So if I say simply the word defund, one year ago, everyone would be like, that is not a rational thing. That is not a thing a rational human being would say. But right now, the idea that we should take 10% of the Boston Police Department's annual budget and we should use that for public health and to educate children. That is completely now a rational, acceptable thing because people were in the damn street marching and chanting.
3: The kind of change you want to see that you're working for, do you think you'll get to see it?
10: I hope so. (laughs) I'm not that old, but I mean, I'm getting there, but I'm not that old, I hope so.
4: I'm very aware that I'm a a white woman. Trying to work to lend my voice in a way that is supportive and um, can push forward the work and the communities that need to be elevated without having it be about me is something I'm constantly working on.
12: It just feels like there's so much that needs to be done and even if it were to take place i wouldn't see it in my lifetime my kids wouldn't see it my grandkids wouldn't see it
9: one of the things that um people have said to me is like we don't win the day that we get all the things that we're demanding we win the day we start to fight
10: i have family members who waited all their life to see a black president you know They seen that. And, you know, that change is still, you know, it's come and gone and we're still waiting for the change. You know, I I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm still I'm still hopeful. I'm still here. So, you know, I can't give up. That's for sure. You know, Um, and I can't allow for my children, uh, you know, my children's children to give up. We're not laying down.
0: That was Massachusetts residents Shaniqua Pereira, Franklin Peralta, and Carl Williams, along with student Tanoa Pierre and Emily Conklin. The piece was produced by WBUR's Adrian Ma. Portia Olewola is the Boston Poet Laureate. She's also an MFA candidate at Emerson College and a fellow with the Academy of American Poets. In 2019, her book of poetry, I Shimmer Sometimes Too, was published. Portia, welcome to Next.
2: Thank you all so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, so talk to us about when you first started writing poetry.
2: See, I think I started writing before I knew it was poetry, But I would write all kinds of things when I was in middle school. I think my first official poem was, um, eighth grade when I was running for a political office, if you will, but for a class vice president. My speech was a total poem in form, right? And when I went to high school, I had a teacher who just dragged me to Louder Than a Bomb. It's, uh, the largest youth poetry festival, I think, in the world. That's what they say, right? But she took me to one of those events um, in Chicago, and I fell in love, and I went home, and I just did not stop writing.
0: Wow. And it's my understanding that you, uh, one of the first things that you wrote were called theories. (laughs) What exactly are those?
2: Yeah. (laughs) I used to, I started out writing theories, and I had all kinds of theories. For example, I'll give you an example. There was one, the case study, if you will, was a cereal box. The idea was like, you could tell a person to describe a box. And if two people are sitting on the opposite sides of the box, then they're going to come up with two different descriptions, even though they are both true. No one is lying. And all of these things can be true at once, is that you know, the box looks this way to one person and the other one looks different to another person. And I I called it perspective, I think. So like, for example, that was one of my theories.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. So they're like little philosophies on life and observations about life. Absolutely. (laughs) You describe yourself as a futurist. What does that mean to you when it comes to poetry specifically?
2: Yeah, see, I, I think I I love Afrofuturism. I love thinking about magical realism, sci-fi, fantasy, all of those things. And I think in the context of poems, and when I first felt drawn to this, this genre, so to speak, or framework, I, I always question whether or not they belong together, whether I could you know intersect futurism into the poems right and it's true it's been done it's so many times before and there are so many wonderful examples right i think for me because i write so much about history i think it makes sense to use futurism as this vehicle to understanding history
0: and is it kind of a way of reimagining history it's reimagining
2: it's reconciling It's inserting magic in a way that feels like something might live forever, you know, even the negative things, right? (laughs) It might live forever. And I think somebody recently, I think it's Kayese Lamont, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but recently said writing is reparations. So I think a lot about that and a lot about that work, you know, of repairing history. Um, So I think the poems, you know, when you mix that magic in and do that.
0: You have a poem called Dorothy Dips a Toe into a Pool After Being Warned the Water Would Be Drained Should a Black Person Swim in It, 1953 Las Vegas, and it connects to what we're talking about right now. And I, I'd love for you to read that poem, but first, is this story about Dorothy based on a true story?
2: Ooh, that's my favorite part. <laughs> you know, in my research, I like to call it like an urban legend because I think at the time, either this happened all the time to Black celebrities at the time, or there was one and people shift around who it happened to. So it's def- definitely based on a true story. Um, the story goes that Dorothy Dandridge, this... Um, Famous black singer actress, she played Carmen Jones. Was getting ready to sing in Vegas at a hotel called The Last Frontier, and as she was getting a tour of the hotel, she passed the pool and she said, "Oh, I can't wait to get in it." And the manager told her she couldn't get in it; the water would be drained if a black person swam in it. And there's a there's a film about it where Holly Berry plays Dorothy, and you can see she dips her toe. The pool is drained, and she walks past later on and see there are black, you know, workers now having to scrub the pool. So, it's this really visceral looped experience.
0: Wow. Okay, so let's hear your poem.
2: All right, and it's uh, of course this afrofuturistic reimagination and it's called Dorothy dips a toe into a pool after being warned the water would be drained should a black person swim in it 1953 Las Vegas. And all at once, without and within, each well of wet everywhere swelled dry. The woman in the shower, shriveling, shaken, bare. The cook steaming at the sink's faulty faucet. The rust keening and dragging itself through pipes. Chalices unfeel, air wilts the face. Moisture abandons the flesh, the breath, the girth. Water unflows, reruns away like blood from a wound. The swimming pool brimming moments ago now hold mothers who hold babies dry sobbing at its base. Guests at the last frontier lay leisurely. Their bodies broiled brittle on the deck. The black spell is the yes cascading over a no. The anti to the anti. All kept from me in spite. Shall spite keep from you with force. And in another land, unpromise. the color blue opens and spreads to blanket each eye. Dorothy stands at the water's ledge her curls and linen lie loose her skin cool and sweet sings a song unsang but known Dorothy a tall tide coaxing herself into herself Dorothy a good curse moves until waves wade at her waist the dancing wet rushes to gather at her hips. She cups the clear in her palms and splashes upward. Dorothy lifts her arms in ocean rain, urges the body to name itself religion. Dorothy splatters and ripples bring forth a sanctum. Each droplet is plenty for the city's south side. A shower gives itself to the children on 83rd playing at the hydrant. A spray fills the pot of collards on the back burner. Another flows through a school's fountain once lined with lead. Dorothy swishes water into the sugar breeze and it lingers in air. No one thirsts. Moisture soothes a lonely throat. Dew demands a mother's seeds to grow. Dorothy raises the ocean and oh, I want to tell you how her hands cradle full drops toward the sky. How the water could hardly stand to let her go.
0: Thank you so much, Portia. That's so beautiful. Thank thank you guys for
2: letting me share that with y'all.
0: I feel like it was a good little release. (laughs) Does it feel that way?
2: You know, I love performing, you know. I think writing is definitely its own connection to a spiritual force, but I, I think similarly about performance and reading and getting close to the words...
0: Yeah, I can feel that. And and I can also hear in this poem, you know, all the things that we've been talking about, specifically this imagining a world that is full and beautiful because Dorothy has touched the water.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's almost this idea that, you know, the water wanted her all along.
0: Well, I, I'm really looking forward to Your manuscript coming out in whatever form it does. And I want to thank you so much for for joining us today on Next.
2: Thank you. Thank you all for having me.
0: That was Portia Olayuola. She's the Boston Poet Laureate and a fellow with the Academy of American Poets. She's also the author of the book I Shimmer Sometimes Too. We're going to take a quick break, but first, I wanted to play this message we got after we announced this is our last episode of Next.
6: Hello, my name is Álvaro Castro Rivadeneira, and first, I want to congratulate you for the top journalism I heard in Next. I listened to your program as a podcast, and it's one of my favorite listens. It it is introspective, it's human, it's kind, it's critical, and it's real. To me, New England is a place of hidden beauty with pockets of surprising diversity, my first real contact with New England came through my ex-wife, who grew up in Key, New Hampshire, which is a beautiful, quaint, and very white town. But she worked across the Connecticut River in Brattleboro, Vermont, which is a very different kind of town. It's more diverse, more edgy, uh, although it's also poorer. Years later, when I moved back to the U.S. from living abroad, uh, I moved to Springfield, Massachusetts, which has one of the largest Puerto Rican communities in the U.S. who have been there for decades. And then I moved to Amherst, which is a beautiful, progressive, rural college town that seems further than it actually is. And uh, helping me make sense of all of this was next, where I could um, witness a changing region with lots of introspection. And that gave me hope about the United States. So thank you for your great journalism. And I'm really sad that the podcast is ending. Bye.
0: It means so much to hear comments like that. Thank you. And after the break, Vanessa De La Torre, editor of the New England News Collaborative, will join us to discuss what's next for the collaborative and how you can continue to stay connected to this changing region. Plus, we'll talk with members of the band Lake Street Dive about changes happening in their group. It's next.
12: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe
4: in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy.
0: Okay, we're back. In a bit, we'll talk with band members from Lake Street Dive, this genre-bending group formed 16 years ago when the founding four were college students at the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston. But first... This is our last show. After five strong years bringing you news and stories from around New England, we're sunsetting Next. I'm excited to welcome Vanessa De La Torre to talk about The Decision. She's the executive editor of Next and of the New England News Collaborative, and is one of the key people behind the scenes making this show possible. Hey, Vanessa.
12: Hey, Morgan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being
0: here. It's so great to have you on the show. And, you know, next is one aspect of the New England News Collaborative's work. So can you talk about what the collaborative is?
12: Yeah, sure. So, you know, the quick and easy answer is that we're a regional news partnership of 10 public media stations that span all of New England. Uh, But what that really means is that we're able to bring you regional news consistently in a way that no one else can. And what we've been able to do on Next is showcase some of the best of that journalism. The decision to
0: end Next was not made quickly or taken lightly. Talk about this choice.
12: You know, we've loved producing Next. We recently produced our 250th episode. We're really proud of the work we've done. You know, we think it's informative. It's public service journalism. And we have some really beautiful storytelling from the journalists within the collaborative. You know, the fact is that as a collaborative, we've grown from where we were five years ago when we started this show and this collaborative. Right before the pandemic, we expanded to 10 stations. So, right there, you know, we have new leadership, new voices at the table, and we're asking ourselves, how can we have the greatest impact? What can we do together that we can't accomplish alone? And we think when it comes down to it, we have a really tremendous opportunity here to accelerate the work we're doing as a collaborative. We just need the headspace and the time to focus on these new initiatives in our minds, to serve as many people as we can in New England. What are some of those priorities moving forward? Right. So first of all, you know, we want to bring you more uh, regional news on the radio day to day. Radios are bread and butter. We know that, you know, we're going to build on that and produce more original collaborative stories out of New England. But we also have to meet people where they are. And that includes more journalism on video, social media, digital platforms in addition to radio. We think this is one of the big opportunities and challenges, to be honest, that we face in public media. And it's how do we stay relevant and push ourselves? Because we want to be here. We want to be thriving 20, 50 years from now. So we have to think about those other ways that we can bring the news to people across New England and across the country. So as part of that, we also want to make sure that the voices you hear in our work are reflective of the diversity that's growing in New England. Uh, We need to do better on this, full stop. Uh, We think strengthening our focus on diversity and inclusivity will make our journalism stronger, better, and this is central to our vision moving forward, for sure.
0: Vanessa, last week when we announced that Next was ending, we got this message from Chris Grather, who lives in Connecticut.
1: When I heard that Next is going to be ending, uh, my first reaction was,
13: what?
1: I have very much valued Next as... a a focus on New England and Connecticut as part of New England. Uh, I think there should be more focus on that, and I'm sad to see the podcast go.
0: So with that in mind, how can listeners continue to hear stories about the region from the New England News Collaborative?
12: Right. So I'm glad that Chris decided to to call in because it, it gives me, it gives us an opportunity to say, You know, so many of the stories you hear on NEXT come from these hardworking, talented local stations that produce this sort of work every day. And so if you're in New England, you'll continue to hear these stories on your local air as part of the New England News Collaborative. We'll also have stories on demand on our website. That's NENC.news. And on top of that, we'll be working on some new initiatives in the coming months.
0: Vanessa De La Torre is the executive editor of Next and the New England News Collaborative. Vanessa, so good to have you on the air and to work with you, and thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Maureen. You're the best. And again, you can stay up to date on the New England News Collaborative at nenc.news.
13: I've been playing
0: This is Lake Street Dive, performing their song Hypotheticals off of their album called Obviously, which was released this year. The band originally formed in 2004, when four of its members were students at the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston. 16 years later, they're still making music. They've played at festivals with musicians like Jeff Tweedy of Wilco, Mavis Staples, and Brandi Carlisle. Joining us to talk about the band and their latest album is bassist Bridget Carney and keyboardist Aki Burmese. Thanks for coming on Next. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. Bridget, you've been with the band since its beginning when you, founding four, went to the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston. You became a YouTube sensation singing on sidewalks. How did you go from being, you know, four college students doing their own thing to singing a cover of the Jackson Fives, I Want You Back, together on a sidewalk and just blowing up on YouTube?
4: Well, we started playing together our freshman year at New England Conservatory, and in the very beginning, we defined ourselves as a free country band, Um, the idea being to play avant-garde country music. And the idea failed, but the chemistry succeeded between the four of us. So we continued to make music together and slowly found our way to this avenue of pop and soul and funk that we kind of like loosely base ourselves around now. I mean, I'd say mostly we were writing our own songs and that was kind of like the point of the band was to to be a, a vehicle for each of our songwriting. But we were also having a lot of fun playing some of these covers and... uh Our friend Greg List said, hey, you want to come over and I'll video you doing some of these great covers that you're doing. We filmed a couple of them and that was the the paint that stuck on the wall, I guess.
13: When I had you to myself, I didn't want you.
4: People really connected to it and it started spreading and people were sharing it around and that was like I guess viral was a word back then but it was new fortunately that also translated to people wanting to come to our shows and and listen to the songs that we wrote as well so it was a really nice moment for us
13: Baby, give me
4: one more
0: won't you please let me Aki, you joined the band in 2017, taking it from a quartet to a quintet. What made you decide, like, yeah, I want to be a part of
12: this?
3: Well, I had actually opened for Lake Street Dive, like, I guess maybe two or three years previous. I was blown away by their their live performance. And uh, we just kind of stayed uh, in contact. And then uh, one fateful winter in 2016, I got an email, I think from Rachel, I was like, would you like to, you know, do some shows with us this coming February? There's no time to rehearse. We're flying in from overseas. <laughs> so just meet us in Boston, get on the bus and learn these 20 songs. And I I was like, yeah, that sounds like a blast. So I went for it, not knowing how it would go. I don't know if, if they knew how it would go, but it, it seems to have worked out.
0: So... Uh- I understand that it obviously did stick because the band asked for your musical hand in band marriage, right? Can you can you paint that scene? Yes.
3: I would love to. It's it's a beautiful scene. Uh, we were in Chicago with a day off, and I was invited to a dinner. I was duped. I was told this is just a thing we like to do on days off. Every now and again, we just get together as a band and have dinner. And we went to a, a very nice restaurant in Chicago in the evening. And we sat down at a, a table for five, uh, and it was beautiful environs. And, uh, at some point, someone said, Oh, what's that over there? And I, I was, uh, I looked away like a total doofus. <laughs> and, uh, and when I turned back, there were five plastic, uh, engagement rings on my salad plate. And, uh, I was formally propositioned to become uh, a member of the band. Uh, and I said yes, a thousand times yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Oh, my gosh. That is so sweet and just so unique, Bridget. Hey,
3: Barry.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I forget whose idea that was to do the rings, but we were very glad he said yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, so now you've got this record out. Aki, you and the band's lead singer, Rachel Price, you sing a duet on the album, on the song Same Old News. He also co-wrote the song with another bandmate, Mike Olson, and let's take a listen to that.
13: I just want to love you I just want to try
0: So it's such a great feel and rhythm to that song. And everyone in the band has songwriting credits on this album. You've said as a band before that your group epitomizes democracy in action, which is a big statement. And Bridget, how does that work?
4: Well, we we talk things out ad nauseum sometimes. And (laughs) we entertain even the wildest ideas that everyone has. And then we settle on a a conclusion that hopefully we're all happy with, or at least somewhat happy with. We don't often, like, specifically vote. Sometimes we do. Yeah, it's a pretty well-functioning democracy,
3: I'd say.
0: That's good to hear. Um, Does that mean, Aki, that sometimes everything takes longer?
3: Uh, Yes, yes. But, uh, you know, I think in that way it's a little bit more solid. I, I believe there's an expression like the... The gears of justice grind slow, but they grind exceeding fine. Uh, I think that's sort of, that's how our democracy works. It it is, uh, it may be slow, but it is sure-footed.
0: Bridget, the song, Nobody's Stopping You Now, you co-wrote that, also with the band's lead singer, Rachel Price. You also wrote the song, Being a Woman. Can you talk about what you're trying to communicate, maybe through both of these songs?
4: Well, I think they're an interesting pairing of songs because they're both kind of have feminism at their core, but different versions of it.
13: Being a woman isn't a pill climb. Eighty cents on the dollar, and you need every dime.
4: The. Being a Woman's Song is, is a somewhat kind of frustrated, like tired statement about the experience of being a woman and how challenging it can be to encounter these inequalities throughout your day, throughout your year, throughout your life. And, and you get to a point where you you put up with it and and you're getting by and things are pretty good. But you know what? We, we still need to talk about this. Something's still not been fixed and we still have a lot of work to do. So that's kind of what... What that song is about, Nobody's Stopping You Now, is sort of the other side of the coin, which is about women being wonderful and awesome and free to be whoever they want to be and whatever kind of woman they want to be. Lay down, girl,
13: the summer's coming on. Take off your makeup and take off your shoes.
4: Rachel started writing it as a letter to her younger self because she was reading some of her diaries that she'd written as a teenager, and and recognizing that this was a really troubled young woman that that was writing this, and so she was kind of a letter saying like, "Look, it's going to be okay. It's hard to be a teenage girl, but uh, you're you're going to get through it, and uh, and get to a point where you realize none of that stuff they were saying mattered, and and you're awesome."
0: As we've said, the band has been together now for 16 years. And for the first time, you're actually losing a member. This May, Mike Olson, who plays trumpet and guitar, among many other roles, announced that he's leaving the band. Bridget, you've spent nearly half of your life together with Mike and and the other three, or the other two, rather, making music since college in Boston. How are you feeling about this news and this change?
4: I feel lucky to have spent 16 years making music with Mike, and he's been a completely uh, crucial member of getting the band to this point and, um, yeah, in reflecting on the great stuff that we were able to do together. I mean, like, when we started the band, certainly you walk into a room with three people that you've never played music with before and never expect that you'll get to play at the White House and Red Rocks and like wildly beyond our expectations of what we would be able to do together already.
0: Yeah, Aki, are are you searching for a new bandmate? And by any chance, is there going to be another band marriage proposal?
3: (laughs) Uh, Listen, if I have my way, yes, there will be many proposals. (laughs) Uh, I think it's a great tradition we're uh yeah we're casting a wide net where we have some people in mind that we're hoping to play with and and see how it goes it's weird to be on the other side of uh, what i feel like i experienced a few years ago when i was coming on board and i'm sure everyone was like well, well we're gonna grow and expand and we'll see what happens
13: this is the last time i will talk about you i will say
0: was Aki Burmese, a keyboardist for Lake Street Dive, and bassist Bridget Carney. You can catch them in early June in concert in New Haven, Connecticut. We're going out with Lake Street Dive's song Sarah from their album Obviously, which came out this year.
13: No one holds a flame, Sarah never before.
0: And that's a wrap on Next. I just want to say it's been such an honor spending this time together. Thank you so much for listening. And you can still find past shows on our website. That's N-E-N-C dot news or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and The Publics Radio.